Well, welcome back to everyone who is joining us for the, the second night of the, the mission. And uh, for those who were not here last night, my name is Father Sean Tunick. I'm at St. Patrick Catholic Church, which I'm, I'm told is the, the sister twinned parish of holy angels, at least in the eyes of some. So there is a, a connection between our two parishes. And um, it's good to be back here. I've, it seems like I, I often come here and I, I always enjoy coming here and uh, you have the beautiful new organ now, and uh, so beautiful. Uh, we used that a lot last night at the opening mass, and uh, will again tomorrow for the closing mass. But of course, the the thing that we most uh, reverence and acknowledge here is not a thing at all, but a person, and that is Jesus Christ, present here on our altar in the most holy Eucharist. This uh, is a unique opportunity to celebrate this parish mission in the context of uh, 40 hours devotion, which I briefly introduced last night uh, by calling our attention to the fact that this tradition of the 40 hours goes, goes back to the time from at the conclusion of the evening mass of the Lord's Supper on Holy Thursday, uh, when the Eucharist is taken to the altar of repose and approximately 40 hours later until Easter Sunday and the, the resurrection of Jesus became the tradition to keep watch with the Eucharist to recognize the presence of the Lord and heed his command. Can you not watch with me? Stay awake, watch. And so for 40 hours, we do that here. Even if you are not able to participate in all 40 of the hours, and just a beautiful blessing for the whole parish, I think, to know that this is going on. And what a, what a beautiful leader you have in, in Father McDonald that knows the great treasure that this is the graces that will come upon the whole parish because of these 40 hours. We can't even number it. So what a beautiful shepherd you, you have that is able to guide your parish so well through these beautiful traditional devotions to Jesus in the Eucharist. For those that were not here last night, you might notice, um, well, something unusual on the altar. We, we have an ox and an ass. Can, do we have kids here? Okay, I can say ass. Great. We have an ox and an ass or donkey, uh, depending. These are straight out of the Christmas manger scene. And last night we, we began with observing the very beginning of the book of the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, in just the very first verses of this entire huge prophetic work, has the rather striking accusation, really, in which he says... The ox knows its master, and the ass its owner's manger. But Israel does not know me. My people does not understand. An ox and an ass at least know who feeds them and where the food is. But at the time of Isaiah, God's own chosen people did not recognize where the food was. They did not recognize their master who fed them. And so kind of continuing on that tonight, um, I, I wanted to kind of continue on the idea of, well, looking at our Christmas manger scenes. Very soon we'll be putting those up and <clears throat> hopefully they'll be an important part of your, your house and our church throughout the at least uh, the season of Christmas and probably maybe some of the end of the season of Advent. But a lot of people are not aware 
For instance, the, the ox and the ass that are a part of our Christmas manger scenes that would not seem complete without it. Well, the whole reason that they're a part of the manger scene is because of that quotation from Isaiah. St. Francis, when he created the first manger scene in the little Italian town of Greccio in 1223, one of his stipulations was there needed to be an ox and an ass so that they could surround the little baby Jesus in the manger scene and remind the people who would see it of that prophecy of Isaiah as a challenge almost to us to make sure that we are at least as smart as these dumb animals who at least know their master. Can we recognize the little baby Jesus as our master as he sits in the manger of our Christmas scenes? Well, tonight I'd kind of like to carry on with that. So hopefully at Christmas, as you see these two little barnyard figures, they're not just there because, oh, well, there probably would have been barn animals because Jesus was born in a stable. The, the scriptures do not actually tell us that there was an ox or an ass uh, at Jesus' birth. But we do know that there were sheep. At least we think they're sheep because there were shepherds, and we assume they, they brought their sheep to see Jesus. So tonight, I'd kind of like to continue, as it were, to meditate on the various figures of our Advent Nativity and Christmas scenes. So as you put those up, you might perhaps reflect back on these talks of these 40 hours. And so from, from Midnight Mass now, the beautiful reading of the Gospel of Luke, or if you prefer, uh, a reading from Linus from Charlie Bound Christmas, also good. Now, there were shepherds in that region living in the fields and keeping the night watch over their flock. The angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were struck with great fear. The angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, a savior has been born for you who is Christ and Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find an infant wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown the gospel of the Lord. Indeed, probably there is no finer reading of that gospel than in a Charlie Brown Christmas. It's, my, it's one of the most favorite secular presentations of the gospel I've, I've ever seen. We're used to having the gospel read at midnight mass and hearing those beautiful words of St. Luke, but there's just something beautiful about this American Christmas tradition of watching Charlie Brown Christmas and... Charlie Brown exclaims in exasperation, isn't there anyone who could tell me what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown, lights please. And then we have a reading of the Holy Gospel according to Luke right on CBS, on national television every year. What a beautiful thing. 
And I guess I want to now focus on the shepherds and the sheep as part of our manger scenes. And maybe in a context tonight, to think about who are the people that get it? Who are the ones who recognize Jesus when he comes? And who are the ones who don't? We certainly saw that last night. Who recognizes Jesus? Well, ironically, it's not Israel, at least not very many of them. Think about that. The entire mission of God's chosen people, Israel, was to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. And when he finally came, almost all of them missed it. Who recognized their master? Who recognized the Lord? Well, last night we saw an ox and an ass. Tonight we continue on that. Who saw, who believed, who didn't? Well, we have shepherds. Once again, not the audience that you would expect to which the revelation of the Messiah would come. Now, we tend to think today, I suppose, when you think of sheep, I don't know about you, but I, we have these images of like cuddly, furry little things that, oh, isn't it cute? It's a little sheep. And like you could hold it and you would like rock it to sleep. Isn't a sheep so cute? Yeah, people are laughing. Like maybe you have a farm. I don't know. If you've ever actually been around real sheep, well, they're not so cuddly. They're kind of smelly. Uh, they need a lot of care because they tend to wander off by themselves. There's a reason why, why Jesus refers to his followers as sheep. Spoiler alert, it's not a compliment, okay? Sheep are not very smart. They wander off all over the place. The reason why a shepherd has to carry that little staff with the crook in it is because, well, he has to grab the sheep as it's going away and hook it by its neck and pull it back. Or if it gets, you know, wandered off the side of a cliff, he has to, he has to kind of hook it and pull it back. I actually had the, a chance when I was over in the Holy Land uh, to see some actual shepherds out working in the fields. And um, I, I was able to, to talk to one of them and say, you know, wow, I, I saw you. You were carrying the, the sheep on your shoulder. That's so beautiful. We see like images and art all the time of a, a shepherd, you know, who has the sheep on its shoulder and it's so cute. Isn't it nice? You know, you like you put your kid on your shoulder like a little piggyback and the shepherd must really love the sheep to put it on its shoulder. Well, the shepherd told me, that's ridiculous. You know why I have to put the sheep on my shoulder? No. It's so dumb that it will run away and get hurt. I want to bring it back to the other sheep, just like in scripture, and it won't go. I literally have to put it on my neck. And the reason why I'm holding its legs is because it will run away. And the whole time I'm holding it on my neck, the sheep goes to the bathroom down my neck. This is the real story of sheep and shepherding. It's not quite the scriptural version, but it does give us some of the reality of, well, just who are these shepherd figures? We get, we get kind of sentimental when we hear the Christmas story and think, oh, shepherds, they're out in the fields. It's so sweet. Shepherd life was hard. They, they lived outside. They were not having access to showers a whole lot, and they lived with sheep. Now, the, the truth is, 
that these shepherds are out in the fields and they're keeping watch over their flocks by night, just like we hear. And these lowly people, again, not the people you would expect the Messiah to be revealed to. They are the ones who get this beautiful message. A savior has been born for you who is Christ and Lord. Now that, those, those two words right there, if you're a Jew and you, you hear those words, in, in Hebrew, the angels would have said to these shepherds that this little baby is Mashiach and Adonai. Okay, Mashiach in Hebrew, that's, that's Messiah. He is Messiah, the anointed one. This is the one prophesied in all the Old Testament that eventually a descendant of David would come to rule over God's people again. Because you see, God promised King David, I will establish your throne forever. There will always be a descendant of David to rule over my people forever. Well, there's just one problem. Eventually, after David, King Solomon rules and things are okay under Solomon. But then his two sons split the kingdom in two. There's division. The 10 northern tribes get exiled by Assyria, never to be seen again. The two southern tribes eventually get exiled to Babylon, only to return as a, a pitiful remnant years later. And the, the last king of David, right before this final exile, the Babylonians come and they, they kill all of his sons right before his eyes. And then just to add insult to injury, they then blind him by gouging out his eyes so that the last thing he would ever see as the last surviving king of David would be all of his heirs being killed before him. And then he is taken blind and imprisoned to Babylon where he dies. That does not seem like good news. In fact, people question, has God forgot his promise? What about the anointed one? What about the Mashiach who would rule over God's people forever? Well, Isaiah had prophesied that indeed an anointed one, a new and everlasting king of David would come. Sometimes you'll, you'll hear in these readings of Advent leading up to Christmas, a lot of references to Jesse. We even have the tradition sometimes in America of a Jesse tree, kind of an Advent counterpart to the Christmas tree. Jesse tree, often hanging Old Testament symbols with Messiah on it. What is this preoccupation with Jesse? Well, Jesse is the father of King David. So you can kind of think when we hear references in scripture to the, the tree of Jesse, well, this is the, the family tree of King David. God's promise, I will make a great dynasty. I will make a house for you, a, a huge family tree that will go on forever. Well, in light of the last king of David having his sons all killed and being blinded and taken to exile, one could say that it seems like anyway that the great royal tree of the house of Jesse, David, has been chopped down and destroyed. Where is the Mashiach? Where is the anointed king? All that's left of the family tree of David is a stump. It's not a very good symbol. Yet, if we pay attention to the readings of Advent, we hear the prophet Isaiah 
give us words that maybe we don't understand them with our modern ears, but a Jew at the time would definitely understand the good news when Isaiah says, behold, a shoot shall sprout from the stump of Jesse. If we knew that, then perhaps even better than a a Christmas tree, the symbol of Advent would be a a stump. Just it it doesn't work as well in song, you know. Oh, Advent stump, oh, Advent stump, you look real dead and lifeless. No, it, it doesn't quite work. But if we were to see with Jewish eyes, the Advent stump, the stump of Jesse is actually a really good symbol because of the prophecy of Isaiah that the tree's not really dead. And again, if you do any gardening or something or you work in your yard and you, if you've ever dropped down a tree, it, you know, it, it's not really dead. You can't really kill a tree, it seems. Little things come up all over the place and there's little shoots and it takes a long time to kill a tree. Well, thank God that's true of the family tree of David as well. The, the tree comes back. In fact, God, as we should expect, is faithful to his promise And he does finally send an anointed one, a Mashiach, a Messiah, to fulfill this prophecy. And who is it revealed to? Shepherds. Behold, in the city of David is born for you a Savior who is Mashiach, Messiah. And to add even greater joy to this message, as if that wouldn't be enough, the shepherds hear the Messiah has been born. This would be the greatest news that anyone had heard in 600 years. The long-awaited Messiah is born. But not just that. Messiah and Lord. And Lord here is, again, a very pregnant Hebrew word. The word in Hebrew would have been Adonai. Now, why is this important? Because the word Adonai Lord, literally, is the word that the Jews used whenever they referred to God, properly speaking, but did not want to use his actual name. Because you see, there's that, that whole commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Well, to avoid taking God's name in vain, the Jews had put what we call a fence around the law. Okay, if we're not supposed to take God's name in vain, we're just not going to use his name at all. And so we know that when God reveals his name to Moses in the burning bush, he says, behold, I am who am. In Hebrew, it's probably something like Yahweh. But they didn't want to use the name Yahweh in vain. So what they did was anytime in scripture that you found the word Yahweh, God's proper name, it's in there in in writing, they would make special notations underneath it, basically, to say, don't say Yahweh. Instead, say Adonai. Substitute Lord instead. So now, again, with Jewish ears, hear the, hear the message of the angels to the shepherds. Behold, a Savior has been born for you who is Mashiach and Adonai. He is the long-awaited Messiah, and more than that, he is God. The same God who spoke his name to Moses out of the burning bush That same God is lying in a little stable over in Bethlehem right now. You see how those just two simple words, he is Christ and Lord, Mashiach and Adonai. It's the fulfillment of everything the Jewish people have been hoping for for at least 600 years. And God reveals this message 
to these humble shepherds in the fields. God is very comfortable with the lowly. After all, he chooses to be born into a little stable, not in a royal palace. There's not even any room for him in a, in a hotel. He's, he's literally born in a stable. So comma with the shepherds for a moment, and let's, let's look at that other piece of our Christmas manger scene, the stable. Now, normally, at least in America, our typical Christmas manger scenes are like a little kind of wooden building, like a little barn almost. One of my most treasured possessions is a, a little Christmas stable that my, my grandfather made for me. Uh, he went out to the woods behind my, my great-grandmother's house and, and got just the right size hickory sticks to, to make the little stable. And he got straw from my great-grandmother's farm and made the roof. And it's, it's a nice little wooden stable. Probably that is not what the birthplace of Jesus looked like. I've, I've had a chance to be in the Holy Land and pray uh, where Jesus was born. And it's actually a cave, which actually makes more sense because if you're a shepherd out in the fields, the area where they would have been keeping watch over their flocks is actually filled with caves. And what they would do in bad weather is they would bring the sheep into the cave. And so there they would get the sheep in the cave and the shepherd would sit across the entrance so that the sheep don't wander off as sheep do. And you can imagine that those caves would get pretty smelly and dirty. That's the place Jesus was born. And in the cave, they would have, you know, kind of found a little stone outcropping to be a manger. A manger was probably not a little wooden structure, although it might've had some boards to kind of block it off, but it probably would have been just a, a natural occurring stone place where they maybe put some boards and then filled it with hay. A manger, as we said last night, is a feed box. It would have been a little place inside the cave where the sheep would have eaten. That's the place where Jesus was born. And I got to live in the Holy Land for an, an entire month in Bethlehem. It was wonderful. When I go back now with tourist groups, literally you, you get to go down, the cave where Jesus was born is right like under the high altar in the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. You go down into the cave and you can actually touch the part of the stone on which Jesus was born. And you can see the little place of the manger. When you go with a tourist group, you get filed through like an animal herd. Like, there it is, see it? Okay, now we're moving on. I got to go and, and pray there for an hour each morning, day after day, if I wanted to, it was beautiful. And to be in that little cave, and realize that this is where God chose to come. Let's certainly remember that as we look at our nativity scenes, the humble lowliness of the way God chose to enter the world. Some of the saints have, have perhaps theologized that not only is it God's humility, but it's almost as if the all-powerful God were kind of slipping behind enemy lines almost secretly into the world so that the devil would not be aware. After all, Satan with his arrogance and haughtiness is looking 
for a powerful military ruler, an adversary who was going to overthrow his kingdom by might and force. Instead, when God comes, he comes as a little humble baby in a cave outside a little town of nothing and appears to shepherds. I love in uh, the movie, the, the Nativity Story, uh, it shows the, the time of Bethlehem where Herod is very worried, of course, about the, the coming of the Christ child. And we'll get to Herod here next. But he's, he's got guards stationed outside Bethlehem so that he could intercept the Messiah as he comes to Bethlehem. Because he knows Bethlehem is the, the city of David, the great king, so the Messiah will probably go there. He has the sentence taken, presumably, maybe even so that he could get the Messiah to return to Bethlehem, to the city of David, and he would catch the Messiah entering. And so in the Nativity Story movie, he's got guards stationed on the roads to Bethlehem, and they're interviewing all the, the young men that look like they could be powerful adversaries. And they're like, is this him? You know, and they've got these, these burly guys. This could be him. And so they're interrogating these strong, powerful looking men. And then rides up Mary on a donkey, Joseph leading the way, and they, they come to question Joseph. Could he be the Messiah? And like, no, these, these are just two poor people, two peasants. And inside Mary is in fact the one that they are looking for. A little baby who slips quietly through the guard and is born in that little cave. And Herod is unable to detect his arrival. Humility, lowliness. Certainly that's what we see in our, our Christmas manger scenes. And of course, the shepherds, then they go and enjoy and the, the beautiful message of the angels. I'll say that when I was in Bethlehem, uh, you think of all the places you would visit in the Holy Land. And I, I've been to wonderful places like the, the very tomb of Jesus. And I got, to, I got to pray all night in the tomb of Jesus in the Holy Sepulchre. Spent three hours on Mount Calvary. Incredible places like that in the Holy Land. But I, I have to say, this is the way God's grace works sometimes. One of my most powerful memories of my first time ever in the Holy Land came at the shepherd's fields. And unlike the, the, the big church of the nativity or the, the church of the Holy Sepulchre, there's nothing at the shepherd's fields except the fields. You can go and see this is where the shepherds were keeping watch. And that's where I met that shepherd who still, they keep their sheep there. And you can see the caves where they, they bring their sheep. And I remember it was about evening time. The sun was setting. And I just was lingering there on the, the hills overlooking the fields and wondering what it would have been like to be there that night and see the angels fill the sky, to be a shepherd there that night, to be overwhelmed by the powerful presence of angels. So no nativity scene is complete without the angel. You have to have the angel. And oftentimes the angel has a little scroll that says Gloria and Excelsis Deo, because of, of course angels speak Latin. Glory to God in the highest that sits right on top of my little manger scene. So as you see that angel and the, the shepherds in your nativity scenes this Christmas, maybe try to imagine for yourself what it would have been like to be there on that, that Christmas night. And as I said last night, to enter into the, the Jewish expectation of this, 
to imagine the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, as Isaiah says in Midnight Mass. You gotta enter into the darkness to understand the light. You've gotta know what it means to have been waiting for the Messiah, for the Savior, for 600 years at least, if not longer, to hear that word of the angel, good news, great joy, in the city of David, the city of the great king, a savior has been born who is Mashiach and Adonai. That's all wrapped up in those little figures we stand in our manger scenes, the little shepherds. And I even have a shepherd that has one on its shoulders. So you'll never look at that in the same way uh, again either. So as we add those figures then to our Christmas manger scene, the, the shepherds, the sheep, the angel. Move on now, again, as we consider who recognized Jesus and who missed it. We see shepherds, shepherds were there. They didn't miss it. Who else then was able to recognize the Christ and who missed him? Well, with that, we need to move on to those other figures in our manger scene, those three wise men, three magi, the scriptures tell us. Well, we know that they're magi. We don't know that there are three of them, actually. It just says magi from the east. So it's, it's more than one, because it's plural. Who are these, these magi that come to seek out this newborn king of the Jews? Well, we don't know a whole lot about them. We know something that magi at the time, the word magician comes from the same Greek word, magoi. Probably they were astrologers of, of some kind, that they, they would have been paying attention to the stars. We certainly know that. We can discern that uh, from scripture. They would have been looking at the sky uh, and they are the ones that are able to notice the star of Bethlehem. Now that's a, a trickier one to add to our manger scenes, isn't it? I, for my manger scene, I, I tend to hang a star from the ceiling over top of it because the, the star of Bethlehem, after all, is a, a bit of a character in the whole manger scene, as it were. What would be the story of Christmas without the, the star of Bethlehem? Now, Imagine, again, we have to imagine ourselves back at that time, as I said, you know, with the shepherds. This time we need to imagine not something theological, but something astronomical. And that is to imagine that you actually could go out at night and see all the stars in the sky. I was, I was walking in the, the parking lot, uh, you know, preparing, trying to pray for inspiration, things like that. And I noticed that when I go out, well, you can see the moon, it's bright enough to see that. You can see Jupiter, a big bright planet, and you can definitely see Venus as it is right now. It's in the evening star position. So there, it's on the, the uh, backside of the sun, as it were. Uh, in case you didn't know, the, the evening star is the planet Venus. <laughs> and a, a bit of irony, it's also the morning star because Venus, because of its orbit inside the earth, it actually well, it can also precede the sun, depending on where it's at in its orbit. But those are pretty bright. But beyond that, it's hard to see stars at all here in this kind of urban area. 
the, the lights from the, the legends over there, right next to St. Pat's where I'm at, you, you're lucky you can see the moon. I mean, pretty much everything else is drowned out by light pollution. But imagine there is no light pollution. And this is where the Boy Scout in me really comes out because I love to go camping and get way far away from the city. Uh, one of my favorite places, Philmont Scout Ranch in New Mexico. It's up in the, the Sangre de Cristo range of the Rocky Mountains. No cities nearby. And when you look up at the sky, it's like, oh my gosh, there are so many stars. I remember being at Boy Scout camp for the first time and I would go out and like, oh, there's, it's perfectly clear night. Look at all those stars, except for that one little hazy cloud that kind of runs across there. Then I went back the next night and I'm like, same thing, that cloud's still there. And then the third night, I'm like, look, oh, hey, wait a minute. I don't think that's a cloud. I think that's the Milky Way. I had never seen the Milky Way growing up near Kansas City. You just can't see it, it's all washed out. When you actually get out in a dark, dark sky and you see the stars, it's almost just overwhelming to see how many of them are there. Now imagine you're one of these magi who every night is able to look up at the darkest sky any human beings would have ever known. There are no lights, just stars. Well, these magi would have been looking at the heavens and there would not have been Whatever the star of Bethlehem was, it could not have been some light that was just so overwhelming that it, it, it would have been like a, a floodlight or something. Because, okay, scientist in me, engineer, that's my background, I always wondered like, okay, I know all about stars, even planets, even the moon. As bright as the moon is, it doesn't like shine a light down to earth that like pinpoints a location. It always kind of bugged me about the Star of Bethlehem, that the Star of Bethlehem appears and somehow the Magi are able to find a spot on the earth because of a star. Stars just don't work that way. Planets don't work, the moon doesn't work. The sun does not even work that way. The brightest star we could ever hope to have is the sun. You ever seen the sun point to something on earth? It just doesn't work that way. So I always kind of wondered, what is this Star of Bethlehem? Well, if you understand kind of Magi and astrology. The star of Bethlehem could not have been like a, an actual physical light, probably, at least not in a natural sense. Rather, the Magi are amongst the people who get it. They recognize what's going on, not because there's an overwhelming light that no one can miss. Rather, as we'll see, most people missed it. What is it they observe? Well, we don't know for sure. And so the church has no official teaching on this. But what I would offer is the kind of signs they would have been looking for are much more what we would call astrology kind of today, to read the meaning of the different movements of the planets amongst the stars. So for instance, about the time that Jesus might have been born, there would have been a, a conjunction, perhaps, a coming together of various planets. Say Jupiter, the, that great father, powerful planet. There's a star called Regulus, which means the king star. Those could have come together in the, the constellation Virgo, meaning the, the virgin, or in a constellation like the ram that refers to the, the Jews. Could be something like something like this. Let's say, because this actually did happen, 
that say the, the king star Regulus would have seemed to be in movement with the planet Jupiter in a constellation that would then indicate the Jews. So you have maybe something in the signs of the sky that says a great king has been born. And it's true that there were some amazing astrological signs that would have only occurred like once in, in hundreds of years that the Magi would have seen. And if they're paying attention, they would have said, this is incredible. We've never seen this combination of stars and this way and planets in our entire lifetime. Something amazing has happened. A new king has been born. And because of the way that the stars and the planets have aligned, it seems that this new king is born in the land of the Jews. Now we can see why it would make sense that, well, they see this, the star, which could be a planet, could be a combination of things, and it indicates a new king has been born in the land of the Jews, so that's why they go, notice they go not to Bethlehem. The Magi do not go to Bethlehem. If the star is pointing to Bethlehem, why don't they go there? Because it's, it's not that specific. It's rather, there's been a great king born in the land of these Jews over in the West. So they go, where? Jerusalem. Why do they go to Jerusalem? Why do they go to King Herod? Because all they know is that a king has been born. So we're going to go to the royal palace in Jerusalem, and obviously that's where we'll find the king, in the royal palace in Jerusalem. So they go and they knock on Herod's door, the king, and literally we read in scripture, in the Gospel of Matthew, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Well, Herod knows no one's been born in his house. In fact, he killed his sons. Herod was not a great guy. Um, and Herod's like, oh, uh, hold on, let me check. And he asks the people, hey, somebody get a Bible out. Um, something about a Messiah, king being born. Where's that supposed to happen again? And literally, I mean, you can see like someone bring me a Bible and they're looking it up. Uh, says here, Bethlehem. Mm, okay. Um, and so the, the Magi are informed that, well, if there's a newborn king, he would probably be born in Bethlehem because that's the city of David. Now you see how it's not so much that a, a star is, is pointing to an exact spot, but rather it's a series of events that are leading them. And so they go to Bethlehem. But notice that when they go to Herod, it says in the scriptures that they are in turmoil to hear this. What, a king has been born? Why, why is it that the shepherds, for instance, they hear that the Messiah and God has been born and they go with joy, with haste to find him, but Herod is amongst those people that I've been referring to who miss it. Again, all of Israel is supposed to be waiting for the coming of the Messiah when he comes. It's not Herod who sees it. Rather, it's not even Jews, maybe, who see it. These magi, are they Jewish? Probably not. But they are willing to come this incredible distance because of what they see in the stars. This must be incredible. Herod completely misses it. And when he's informed about it, he actually fights against it. He decides... Rather than rejoice at the newborn king, he is going to try to kill the newborn king. In fact, he does kill all the children in Bethlehem under two years old, trying to wipe out the Messiah. This is the, the leader of God's people 
who is supposed to be the one who leads them to God, when God actually shows up, as has been prophesied for years, he tries to kill God. It doesn't get worse than that as far as missing the coming of the Messiah. But who gets it? Gentile, non-Jewish astrologers from the East. They come on a huge journey and they bring the finest gifts they've got. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. That's how sometimes we think that there are three of them. There are three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But they go to Bethlehem and they fall on their knees and present their gifts to Jesus. They're not afraid of the sign of this little baby lying in the manger. They, they trust what they know. They trust what has been revealed to them. This is God. Notice for them, it's not, oh, this is the Messiah. They, they probably wouldn't have known. Anointed one, long foretold, we don't know. All we know is that the greatest king of kings has just been born, and this is him. And we must be in his presence. And they come, and they bring presence. Notice that in, in both of these cases, then, the shepherds, the kings, the magi, unlikely people who nonetheless recognize the presence of the Messiah as he comes, and then they go to be in his presence. That's the thing that really astonishes me about the, the magi, that the shepherds were right there in the field. So of course they're gonna go to Bethlehem. They're, it's, it's, it's a mile at most from the shepherd's fields to the church of the nativity. Of course they went. But why did the magi have to go? I mean, they could have seen the signs in the sky and say, wow, the king of kings has been born. This is amazing. Why go to Bethlehem? There is, wrapped up in the Christmas story, the idea of personal presence. To be in the presence of Jesus had to be something miraculous. It conveyed a power to be in that little cave in Bethlehem on the night Jesus was born. Ah, to be one of those shepherds, to, to be one of the magi that would come hundreds of miles just to be in the presence and leave him their gifts. Imagine how powerful the presence of the Christ child was. And yet, we know that we are in the presence right now of something infinitely more powerful. We have God himself, just as real as it was in Bethlehem, that saints tell us that the presence of Jesus in the Eucharist is even more powerful and more beneficial for us than it was for the apostles to be with him the three years of his public ministry. The Magi who came to be in the presence of the Christ child did not have the gift that we have right now in the Eucharist. For we not only get to bow down in his presence and leave our, our gifts the best that we have, we know in this most holy sacrament of the altar, we actually get to receive God into our very bodies. We who have the Holy Spirit 
dwelling in us from our baptism and are made fit temples for the Lord, get to take God himself into our very bodies. That is astounding. We can look back in the prophecies and see, yes, I will feed my people with finest wheat. I will shepherd my people and give them food. I will lead them to the fresh running water. I will provide them with a land flowing of milk and honey. We can find lots of images in the Old Testament of God feeding his people. But the idea that when God came, he would humble himself to such a point that he would actually give us himself to be our food. I dare say none of the prophets of the Old Testament saw that coming. Astounded as the shepherds and the magi were to see the little baby and think, this is God? Imagine how astounded they would be to think that we could look at what looks like bread in our monstrance there and know that that is the one true God of all the world. The Mashiach, Adonai, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, right there on our altar. As we look at our manger scenes this Christmas, we might think of who are those that are there who got it and who are not there and missed it. Because there are, are two groups, those who get it and those who don't. An ox and an ass, they get it. They're there. Shepherds, they're humble enough and lowly enough to be looking for the Messiah and God. And when he comes, they run with haste. The Magi, they're a part of our Christmas manger scene because they get it. They're there. But then Herod is not there. Herod tries to kill the Christ child. There's a bunch of people full in an inn back in Bethlehem were sleeping. They're not there. They don't recognize it. All the people in Jerusalem apparently are unaware. They don't recognize it. God gives us this great freedom. When he comes, he does not impose himself like that great military ruler that people were thinking would come and conquer with might and power. Certainly God could have done that. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Yeah, he does. He's all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants. But he does not want to overpower us. That's why he comes as a little baby, I think. Who could, who could be afraid of a little baby? Herod. But not us. We're not afraid of a God who comes so humbly to be a little baby. Rather, God does not impose. He proposes to us. So as we look on our Christmas manger scenes, perhaps we can see the great proposal of Jesus to us. Will, be, will we be one of the shepherds, the magi, or even at very least the, the ox and the ass? They know the secret and they gather around our manger scenes. Tomorrow with the, the closing mass, we will consider the, the stars of the show, as it were, other than the, the actual star of Bethlehem. But uh, the people without which the, the manger scene is not complete, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, uh, they will be the focus of tomorrow's talk 
But as we, we spend some time now in the presence of the Eucharist, imagine that you are in those fields with the shepherds. If we could see with the eyes of faith at every mass, countless multitude of angels hover around the altar. It's why we sing holy, holy, holy. That's the song that the book of Revelation tells us the angels sing in heaven. We sing glory to God in the highest on the more solemn feast days, echoing the very words of the angels at Bethlehem that we would recognize that when we come to mass, it's as though we're in the field with the shepherds and the angels sing the good news of the Mashiach, Adonai. It's as though we are blinded by the astrological truth of the stars. God says, will you come? The King of Kings is here. Will you go? Finally, we know that even here tonight, there are people who are here, you are here, you said, this is important enough. I will come, I will be present, I will go. And there are people who were invited and didn't come. There are other things to do. And there will always be other things to do. God will never hit you over the head and demand that you just, you have to be here. You will always have your freedom. And I pray that these little symbols that we put around our manger, shepherds, magi, the angel, the star, that they would be seen by you as an invitation from God to draw near, not the little stable of Bethlehem that it represents, but everything that was proclaimed on that Christmas night. Mashiach, Messiah, Adonai, God, Yahweh, and the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, right there in the Eucharist. Will you be amongst those who get it, those who understand, those who go and worship? Or will you be amongst the ones who miss it? God offers himself. He proposes. What will our response be?